Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The primary election is just around the corner and that means campaigning and Republican infighting is ramping up for the final sprint to the polls. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, Division of Financial Management Administrator Alex Adams joins us to talk about Idaho's budget surplus and what it means for the next fiscal year. Then Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press and Kevin Retchert of Idaho Education News give us a rundown on the hottest legislative races, Republican Party infighting and the last minute campaign rush before Tuesday's primary. But first, after last week's news of a leaked draft of a U.S. Supreme Court opinion that would overturn Roe v. Wade, some candidates in Idaho feel Idaho's trigger law doesn't go far enough. Should the Supreme Court overturn Roe v. Wade, Idaho has a law that would go into effect that would criminalize nearly all abortions with exceptions for rape, incest, and the life of the mother. Lieutenant Governor Janice McGeehan said this week that Governor Brad Little should call a special session for the legislature to address the potential abortion ban by eliminating those exemptions and suggesting the state should increase penalties for those who violate the law. McGeehan is, of course, challenging Little in the Republican primary for governor. In a statement on Monday, the McGeehan campaign said, quote, no child should ever be murdered because of the circumstances surrounding his or her conception. Life begins at conception and such life must be protected with the same legal status afforded to all other people in our state. Any effort to terminate life once conception has occurred must be regarded as legally equivalent to an attempt to take the life of any other Idahoan." Unquote. Meanwhile, some Idaho employers, including Amazon and Chobani, have said they will pay for travel for employees who go out of state for abortions. Idaho U.S. Senators Jim Risch and Mike Crapel have announced plans to support legislation that would prevent government employees' home addresses from being listed publicly online. That comes after protests outside of Supreme Court justices' homes following the leaked draft opinion on Roe v. Wade. Idaho state lawmakers have tried to pass similar legislation to limit protests outside public officials' homes after a series of demonstrations over the past two years, but those bills did not move forward. Congressman Mike Simpson has signed on to a letter to the Biden administration asking them to take immediate action on the nationwide shortage of baby formula. The shortage has been an ongoing issue for weeks due to recalls, and the FDA has said it is working to alleviate the supply chain issues. Here in Idaho, that shortage is affecting families statewide, especially those who rely on WIC, as they can't use those WIC benefits to order formula online. That's left some rural Idaho families driving to multiple towns to try to find formula. Idaho Reports reached out to Idaho's public health districts who said, if you're having trouble finding formula, call your pediatrician's office to see if they have samples and try calling stores before driving there. Don't water down formula to stretch it out and don't make homemade formula. Both of those can be dangerous for babies. If your baby is old enough, check with their doctor before introducing solid foods or milk. And if you're about to give birth and are on the fence about nursing versus formula, WIC has resources to help with breast 
breastfeeding if you're able, including in-person appointments with lactation consultants. Contact your local public health district for information. On Tuesday, Idaho's Division of Financial Management announced April tax revenues for the state exceeded $1 billion for the first time in Idaho history. Alex Adams, administrator for the Division of Financial Management, joined me on Friday to discuss what this means for the state. Thanks so much for joining us. Can you give us the latest on those revenues? So uh, DFM just released the April revenue numbers for uh, the state's general fund. And any state, April is always going to be the largest revenue month. It's when income tax filings come in. So it really has the chance to make or break your budget. And uh, this year, uh, we hit a state record. It's the first month in state history that we collected over a billion dollars in revenue in a single month. So just for context, uh, just two years ago, the entire state's general fund budget was $4 billion. So to collect a quarter of that in a single month uh, just uh, defies any reasonable expectations. And so, that's much more than you had anticipated it collecting. It is, yeah. So you, you forecast at the beginning uh, of, of the year uh, when the legislature convenes in January, the governor debuts his revenue forecast, and then April really is the make or break month. So for revenue to come in uh, as hot as it does, it really is suggestive of a red hot uh, economy in Idaho. And I, I wanted to ask about the factors in those revenues. It, was it the result of a, a forecast that was a severe underestimation, or was it the red hot economy, or, or was it a little bit of both? Well, I, I think to start off with, April again is driven primarily by income tax filing. So it's both individual income tax as well as corporate income tax. And uh, they uh, exceeded forecast uh, by orders of magnitude. Uh, so I think it's highly suggestive of uh, rising incomes for individuals as well as strong business profits. I think the way Governor Little has managed the economy has, has uh, substantially uh, helped with the economic uh, rebound. Uh, in terms of forecasting, the state uh, generally sees a surplus come in over the forecast. That is because the state has a balanced budget requirement, uh, both constitutionally and uh, statutorily. Uh, so if, if uh, we adopt a forecast that's high and revenue comes in low, that means in the middle of the year, you're doing holdbacks or cutbacks, and that can be very disruptive to uh, agency programs as well as uh, citizens who rely on those programs. So uh, oftentimes they uh, do uh, forecast uh, conservatively. So with this bump in revenue, what does that mean for the state moving into the next fiscal year? Uh, so uh, the state is on pace to end this fiscal year, which ends on June 30th, uh, with a surplus between 1.2 and $1.3 billion. Now, as with any forecast, it can go up or down. We've got to see the May and June revenue numbers, uh, but it, it does appear we will end the year with a healthy uh, surplus for the third straight year. You know, do we know yet now, uh, how that new income tax bill that was passed this legislative session, you know, record or hi historic tax breaks for Idahoans, do we know yet how that will affect revenues in this next fiscal year? Yeah, so um, income taxes, uh, you, you always find out about the cut the year after because it shows up in filing. So uh, to start off with last year, Governor Little cut taxes. He cut the top rate from 6.925 down to 6.5. And that was uh, projected to cut about $180 million of taxes. Uh, that's what we saw in the filing this year. Uh, last year's tax cut, we still exceeded forecast. 
Uh, he did cut taxes again this year from 6.5 down to 6. That was projected to cut about 250 million in taxes in the next year. It's safe to say, based on what we saw in terms of income tax filings this year, uh, the governor's tax cut is going to exceed that. But based on the growth we've had, uh, the budget is still structurally balanced over the next five years based on the new uh, new projections moving forward. So uh, to your point, Governor Little has had two consecutive years of the largest tax cuts in state history, and we're still seeing this revenue come in. He also said this week that, uh, assuming he wins re-election, that he's eyeing tax cuts for the next legislative session. Any idea what those might look like? Well, certainly passed as prologue. You know, folks who have watched uh, Governor Little over the past four years know He's done record tax cuts, record investments in education, particularly teacher paying compensation, as well as record investments in infrastructure uh, where it counts, roads, bridges, air, rail, water infrastructure, park trails, things of that nature. I don't think it's a stretch to think that you'd see the governor pursue uh, more of that. Uh, throughout his tenure, governor has focused heavily on income tax uh, cuts, uh, and uh, he's gotten the rate down substantially, but he's also done property tax relief. He's also done uh, credits for uh, food and other things like that. We also did a $60 million uh, cut this year for small businesses and unemployment insurance taxes. So uh, governor's really uh, focused across the board uh, in the areas where it matters most for Idahoans. Is grocery tax on the table? Governor's always been clear if that gets to his desk, uh, he would sign it. How does federal inflation play into the state's fiscal picture? Yeah, so I, you know, I think one of the things that's really important for viewers to understand is the record April numbers we saw are based on income tax uh, for folks from last year. Uh, so moving forward, uh, we are facing a lot of uh, storm clouds on the horizon. There's record federal inflation. I mean, it hasn't been this high in 40 years. You have soaring energy costs. You have a tight labor market. You have geopolitical strife internationally. Uh, there's just a lot of things that uh, are making folks nervous. And uh, the states that are going to be successful are those that have done steps like Governor Little has taken. He's rebuilt the rainy day funds. Uh, we have the largest balance in our rainy day funds in state history. We're over a billion dollars, which is about 20% of our, uh, our revenue forecast. Uh, he paid off state building debt. Uh, he uh, put money into deferred maintenance to lower the out-year costs for our children and grandchildren in maintaining critical state assets. So the states that are gonna weather the storm the best are the states uh, that took those prudent, good kitchen table economic steps that Governor Little has taken. You know, there are going to be some viewers who are listening who have read coverage about Lieutenant Governor McGeehan's budget shortfalls this year, which uh, by the end of the fiscal year are projected to be a few thousand dollars. If we're talking about a surplus of more than a billion dollars by the end of the fiscal year, why can't the state just cover that? It's a fraction of 1%. So um, constitutionally, the state has a balanced budget requirement, and then uh, in statute, it applies to each individual agency, including uh, constitutional officers. Uh, agencies cannot spend their appropriation. However, appropriations are set by the legislature, the Joint Finance and Appropriations Committee, and then pass both bodies. Uh, the governor doesn't have the ability to modify the appropriations that were passed by the legislature in instances uh, like this. Uh, so while the state is on pace for record surplus, uh, results may vary by individual agency. All right. Alex Adams, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you.
The primary election is just around the corner, which means that campaign spending and attacks are ramping up. Discussing that with me today are Kevin Richard from Idaho Education News and Betsy Russell from the Idaho Press. Kevin, there are so many primary races yeah. that, uh, and only on the Republican side, there's not a single Democratic legislative primary mm -hmm. on the ballot on Tuesday. Uh, what races are you gonna be watching? Well, aside from the obvious statewide races, there are so many legislative primaries that are really interesting that could really shift the balance of power within the Republican Party. I mean, you, you start in North Idaho with a really, really spendy race in District 1, the Senate race, uh, Jim Woodward, the incumbent, Scott Herndon, uh, the challenger with Bonneville County, uh, Bonner County Republican ties, all the way down to District 35 in the eastern corner of the state. You know, Chad Christensen has a really, you know, you know really spendy challenge. Yeah, you know, all up and down the throughout the state. There, are, you know, I have identified probably close to 20 legislative races that are really interesting. I'll definitely be keeping my eye on that uh, District 1 race with Woodward and Herndon, and certainly with Chad Christensen um, and his challenger, Wheeler. Betsy, you have a whole list that you're gonna be watching. Oh yeah, and just right here in the Treasure Valley, there are four races that, because of redistricting, feature incumbent versus incumbent. And so we know there's gonna be change out of those, and some of those are really significant. Um, Senators Abby Lee and Jim Rice are facing off in the primary, along with two other candidates, representatives Judy Boyle and Scott Syme, only one of them will survive um, <laughs> to, to be elected again. Senators Stephen Thane and Scott Grow, they're facing off, and representative John Vanderwoude and Greg Furch. Um, all of these are contests directly impacted and created by redistricting, but they tell us something about, you know, what's going to change with existing, in some cases, longtime legislators who will be gone. Well, I think and, and the, the first one that you mentioned is is a perfect example of that. You know, with Senators Abby Lee and Jim Rice, uh, one of them is in leadership. One of them is the Senate Local Government and Taxation Chairman, both prominent and powerful mem members of the Senate. And one of them, at least, is not coming back next year. Um, and that's an interesting district. That's also home of the Judy Boyle-Scott Syme race, where a couple of the incumbents have an advantage over the others because of the way that redistricting played out. Right, it isn't just that redistricting put these candidates together. You really have to kind of dig in and look at what the legislative districts look like and who is more familiar in these districts. I mean, Betsy pointed out in her reporting that when you look at the Abby Lee-Jim Rice race, that is much more of Abby Lee's old Senate district than it is Jim Rice's old Senate district. The uh, Thane-Grow race is a really good example. I mean, Stephen Thane spent the past decade running and winning in this district that went from Jim County into Custer County and Lemhi County. All of the central Idaho counties are not in his legislative district anymore. Jim County is, but that's only 35% of the electorate, 36% of the electorate in that new legislative district. So you would think that those numbers might favor Scott Grow. But at the same time, Stephen Thane has been in the legislature, first in the House and then in the Senate, for much longer than Senator Grow. And that could be an advantage for him yeah, too. Right, and it might really just come down to campaigning in different ways in new legislative districts. I mean, a, a Stephen Thane or a Jim Rice or some of these other can, you know, incumbents, they can't rely on word of mouth. They can't rely on name ID in their old districts. They, they, you know, it's not a matter of just going door to door 
and meeting up with folks who've supported you in the past. Maybe you have to do more advertising, maybe you have to do more direct mail. You know, there's no guarantees with the way these districts break down that you know, one candidate is you know, ironclad, you know, assured of winning. But it really does change the dynamic and how you campaign. And the changes in districts affect other races as well. And one is um, Representative Ron Nate's race in eastern Idaho, a rematch against Britt Raybould, who um, is, is attempting a comeback. And that district has changed. It hasn't changed a ton, but it has changed enough that it might benefit Raybould rather than Nate, and that would be a big change. If she were to come back and be on JFAC again rather than him on JFAC, we can see all kinds of dynamics changing in the legislature. And the primaries in that district, you know, regardless of who came out on top, whether it was Raybould or Nate in past races, they've always been very close. Mm -hmm. But they had that sliver of, was it Bonneville County? Yes. That, that really sometimes benefited Ron Nate, and so, but he has been campaigning hard and he has been fundraising hard. But Raybolt has raised even more money. I mean, Britt Raybolt has raised close to $100,000 in this primary. That is very unusual. And there are a handful of races that are in that, yeah, hitting that threshold or passing that threshold. We're seeing a more, we're seeing a very expensive round of legislative races in spots. Right, right. Another race that I'm keeping an eye on is Senator Fred Martin from District 15 in Boise, which has been something of a swing district in recent years. It was just back in 2018 that he only won re-election by six votes in the general. Um, and this time he has a challenge from Representative Cody Galloway in the same district. She is a sitting representative from the same district. She's challenging him in the primary. And, and that's also a three-way race. And so you know, that also could affect where things go in the, in the Senate in the House. And I know that there are a lot of races I'm going to be watching in central Idaho. Carl Crabtree has a strong primary challenge. Um, the new districts around Lewiston are very different than mm -hmm. they were for the last 10 years, so I'll be watching a lot of those. Uh, big changes, regardless of what happens on Tuesday, we're going to have a very different House, a very different Senate. And a very different budget committee between retirements and potential losses, uh, turnover in these primaries. You could have all lot of turnover in the most powerful committee in the legislature. Including in its leadership. I mean, Rick Youngblood, the co-chair, is not seeking re-election. Carolyn Troy, vice chair, is has retired. I mean, it's it's going to be a whole different ballgame. Mm -hmm. Also, we have so many House members running for the Senate, and many of them are um, kind of from the far right contingent who have complained that the Senate is is not um, favorable enough terrain for House bills and some of them have a good chance of being re being elected to the Senate. One example is Ben Adams who um, is running for an open seat and Tammy Nichols is running for the Senate. We have have uh, a lot of uh, back and forth and change going on. Akunowitz is another example. Absolutely, of Doug Akunowitz. I believe he's unopposed. I believe you're right. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the fundraising. In You mentioned the legislative races are, in some areas, very expensive. State superintendent's race, you have reported on how it's surprisingly expensive. We're seeing something in that race that we just have not seen in the past 20 years. Uh, Debbie Critchfield has raised more than $300,000. That we know of, because obviously, you know, we're not going to get the final numbers until after the primary. That is a six-fold increase over what we've seen in the most, you know, in the past primaries in that race over the past 20 years. I mean, 
if not for Critchfield, we'd be talking about how Brandon Durst has maybe raised, has raised more money than anybody running in these primaries in the past 20 years. It's a very expensive by that metric race. I mean, this has usually been kind of, it's a down ticket race. There's not a lot of fundraising, there's not a lot of spending. This is a very different race and you're seeing a lot of Critchfield ads on television. How that shakes out in the primary is uh, an open guess, though. Right. Thinking back to 2014, when Andy Grover outraised and outspent all of the other Republican candidates in that superintendent field, Sherry Ibarra by far was the lowest fundraiser, and she still won. I could make a case for all three of them winning on Tuesday. Critchfield simply because, you know, three hundred thousand dollars and a huge increase in a huge advantage in fundraising, the ability to advertise. That helps. Brandon Durst has really kind of carved out the lane trying to get the hardline conservative vote. That could be a path to victory. And Sherry Ibarra, she's four for four in state races, a lot of times grossly uh, underfunded relative to her competition. So you can't really count her out either. I mean, like I say, this one could go in any way. You know, there are also a lot of endorsements in that race and a lot of other statewide races. Let's talk a little bit about that. Historically, do those endorsements tend to make a difference in those statewide races? In I think that endorsements certainly can make a difference. I mean, we've seen um, really some prominent mainstream endorsements for Debbie Critchfield um, from people like former Governor Butch Otter and Congressman Mike Simpson. And look at the Attorney General's race. I believe it was just today that Lawrence Wasden announced that he's been endorsed by Brad Little and three former Republican governors, Butch Otter, Dirk Kempthorne, and Phil Batt. Uh, these are big names. And so if there are but people- meanwhile, Raul Labrador has endorsements from prominent national figures like Senator Mike Lee and Mike Pompeo from the Trump administration. That's right. but. Do people in Idaho, when they're deciding who should be their next attorney general, wonder what Mike Lee from Utah thinks or somebody from Kansas? It will be new if that is how it's going. But, but yeah, endorsements are rolling in, they're rolling out, and they only matter if the voter feels like that's who I want to look to to help me make my decision. That's someone I trust with this decision. So we'll see. And one of the more interesting endorsements of the week, the Idaho Education Association came out with endorsements in state races. They're not even bothering to endorse in the primary for state superintendent. They went straight to endorsing Terry Gilbert, the Boise Democrat, who's running unopposed next week. Now, that's not in and of itself surprising. I mean, Terry Gilbert is a former president of the IEA. He's a career educator. You would expect the IEA to eventually endorse Terry Gilbert in September or October. They are not even taking a position, and basically they are you know, varying degrees of critical of all three of the Republicans running for state superintendent. You know, and speaking of Republican Party infighting, there was a very high profile fight this week with the Idaho Republican Party suing the Bonneville County Central Committee. Uh, Betsy, what was this lawsuit about? So the Bonneville County Republican Central Committee not only has been endorsing its favored candidates in the Republican primary against other Republican candidates running in that primary, some of them incumbents, it's also been um, making cash donations and it sent out a sample ballot, which I think was what really tipped this over the edge, that said, you know, these are the official Republican Party picks. Vote for Brian Smith, vote for Janice McGeehan. And, and the Republican Party doesn't do that. That's the not what the state Republican Party. And so basically they're, they're accusing the county party of going rogue. And that phrase was, was even used in the lawsuit. And we now have the state party and one of the county parties facing off in court over this. 
other county parties and central committees have made endorsements. What's the difference here? Well, this one in particular had a bylaw that said they could not do that, although I understand they have now repealed that bylaw. And so I'm not sure exactly how that plays out. There are allegations in the lawsuit that not only party rules, but state laws have been broken. You know, one of the candidates that you mentioned that got that endorsement from the Bonneville County Central Committee, Janice McGeehan. The lieutenant governor this week um, said she called on current Governor Little to call the legislature for a special session to remove existing exemptions in Idaho's trigger law that would go into effect if Roe v. Wade is repealed. And those exemptions would be for rape and incest. And the life of the, the mother. life of the mother. Um, you reported on that this week. Mm -hmm. what, what did you find out? Well, a couple of things struck me. One was that Lieutenant Governor McGeehan was very vehement that she wants no exceptions. All three of those would be gone. Another is that both sides in the abortion debate completely objected to her proposal to call a special session of the legislature now to change the law now when the law is in a state of flux. And basically neither side thought there was any sense in, in messing with it at this point until we know what's going to happen. And what we're talking about here um, in Idaho's trigger law is a, a law that the legislature passed in 2020. It's not that bill that passed this year about the six weeks and the lawsuits that's tied up in court and hasn't taken effect. That 2020 law that's on the books doesn't have six weeks in it. It doesn't have any time period in it. All abortions would be felonies unless they fit those three extremely narrow exemptions. And McGeehan said she wants to get rid of the three exemptions. Now, and what's interesting about that, compared to other states that would prosecute the woman seeking the abortion, this goes only after physicians. And Correct. that is where the uh, Legislative Republican Caucus is right now. What stood out to me about Lieutenant Governor McGeehan's statement was it it's so far removed from what we heard from House Republicans over the last few years, the, the majority of them. We've certainly seen proposals to prosecute women for murder for seeking an abortion, but those didn't even get hearings. But th this takes that a couple steps further. I think that the lieutenant governor has very clearly made an attempt to stake out the farthest, most extreme, no exceptions position on this issue, and she's done it consciously, and she's done it right before the election to say, this is where I am. If you vote for me for governor, this is what you're gonna get. And you said you spoke to lawmakers about that proposal, including some who are anti-abortion. That's right, I, I spoke with Representative Brent Crane. I spoke with Representative Laura Nicochia. And both of them were very much taken aback with the call for a special session to remove those exemptions, and neither of them liked the idea for very different reasons. You know, with the election coming up on Tuesday, are you anticipating, what are you anticipating in terms of voter turnout? Oh, it's always, it's, it's always such a question how many Idaho voters will actually go to the polls in a primary? Because in the past, so few have. It's only a very small percentage of our electorate that has bothered to turn out for primary elections. Now, it has been going up a bit in recent years, and I think it's possible that with the huge interest that's been generated in these big races, that in many cases are actually being decided in the primary, that maybe we will see higher turnout. Any predictions, Kevin, on what turnout might be on Tuesday? Not really in terms of the numbers or in terms of the makeup. I mean, you would think 
that maybe a higher turnout, maybe a you know, more of a crossover vote, more of a you know, that a higher turnout might favor more centrist candidates, the mainstream Republican candidates, and a lower turnout might favor the hardline candidates. But who knows? This has been such a, a turbulent election cycle that. Uh, uh, predictions are, are hard to come by, right? A turbulent election cycle that has already lasted more than a year. Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press, Kevin Richard, Idaho Education News. Good luck reporting on Tuesday. It'll be a long night and the a Idaho, turbulent night. a turbulent <laughs> night. Regardless of what happens and the Idaho Reports team will be continuing our coverage online. Look for our election primary results roundup on Wednesday. You'll find the links at idahoptv.org slash Idaho Reports. We'll see you next week. presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.